Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Our reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. You may locate this text in your Pew Bible on page 893. Let us pray. God of life, we are here because we need you. There's something about these words that captivates us and draws us in. The more we encounter your word, the more we realize there's always something new to learn. So open our hearts, O God, and through your word, teach us your ways. Amen. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. A couple of weeks ago, I told my oldest son, Nathan, that I was going to be preaching on the screens at Village on Antioch like Pastor Tom usually does. He said, does that mean you're going to be funny? (laughs) I said, do you think Pastor Tom's funny, buddy? And he said, yeah. Well, adult funny. So I'm feeling the pressure today to be a little adult funny, and I am starting this sermon off with, a, with what I hope will be an adult funny joke. Here we go. 
a Presbyterian and a Baptist end up outside the pearly gates at exactly the same moment. Standing in front of them is none other than St. Peter with those keys to the kingdom just dangling off his hip. He calls the Presbyterian up first, looks him up and down, opens the book of life to see all the good and bad deeds. Then he slams it shut and looks at him with a big smile, says, great news, you're in. Pulls the keys off his hip, opens the gate with him. The Presbyterian goes in, the trumpets are sounding, the harps are playing, the angels are singing. Golden confetti begins to shower around him. A red carpet rolls out in front of him, and St. Peter begins to walk him to his heavenly mansion. Baptist is feeling pretty good. She's pretty excited about her turn. So she's waiting on St. Peter to get back, and she's waiting, and she's waiting. Several minutes pass, and finally she hears a noise. There's a, there's a creak from a small wooden door right beside the main gates. It flings open and out pops St. Peter, and he's waving her forward. She's a little concerned about what it means that she is not going in through the main gate, but she's moving forward. She gets there terrified, looks at St. Peter and says, there must be some kind of mistake here. I have lived a good life. St. Peter looks at her for a second and says, oh no, I'm so sorry. No, you have lived a good life. I mean, definitely better than him. It's just, do you know how long it's been since we had a Presbyterian up here? <laughs> I have heard that joke at least half a dozen times. And every single time the pairings change, it could be a Methodist and an Episcopalian or a Franciscan and a Jesuit, it's your pick, really. All of those characters are interchangeable, all of them except one, St. Peter. He's always the one standing on our side of the gate in the modern imagination, he has one and only one job for all of eternity, to be heaven's doorman. So people usually regard him in one of two ways. He's either a cartoon figure working for the big man in heaven, or he is the foreboding keeper of the keys who decides your eternal fate. Neither of those depictions is accurate or helpful because they take who was a mortal man and turn him either into a goofy bit character or, in essence, a god. All those do is distance us from someone who is a lot like us. A lot like me. A lot like you. People who some days follow, find following Christ are pretty natural and rewarding things and who on other days come up short. I don't mean by a little bit. Some days it's golden confetti, and others we're sneaking in the side door. Our reading for today shows us briefly how these two realities played out in Peter's life. One day he wins Jesus' little trivia game about who he is, the Messiah. And then he gets a resounding resounding attaboy for having received this information from the Father. Jesus makes him the rock upon which the church will be built, and because St. Peter is so receptive to God's wisdom, 
that his decisions from thenceforth will be in perfect alignment with God's decisions. Peter, the rock, is having a great day. But just a few days later, the rock gets rocked. Peter decided that he should try and talk Jesus out of walking a path that would lead to his crucifixion, but a path that would also fulfill his ministry. And Jesus is not pleased. Jesus scolds Peter for trading away divine wisdom for earthly nonsense. He tells him to get behind him and calls him Satan. There's no fudging the Greek here. The word is satana. The rock, in just a few days, is turned into the devil. Peter is holding on with dear life to a pendulum that swings between getting it really right to getting it really wrong. I get the sense that our gospel writer intentionally sets up these two accounts right up against each other so that we can see Peter in this light. He is both the foundation of the church and the one who always threatens to tear it down. He is both the one who reflects God's own wisdom and the one who, maybe out of fear, maybe out of a desire to control Jesus' life, I don't know, tries to get Jesus to abandon the path that leads to the cross and eventually to the empty tomb. Now, Peter's story admittedly is extreme, but I am guessing that all of us have had really great moments in our faith journeys, coupled with some not-so-great ones. Moments when, like kids on the diving board, we're calling out, Hey, God, watch me! And others where we're hiding under our towel after a lifeguard has kicked us out for rough play. Ten years ago, when I was a grad student, I had a paper accepted for presentation at a conference in St. Andrews, Scotland, Aaron and I decided that we were going to make a trip out of it and have some family join us. So while they went on daily adventures in the area, I was at the conference all day. Before you feel too bad for me, you should know, it was like a pig in mud. I was so happy. The room was filled with eager grad students just like me, and we got to rub elbows with world-renowned scholars. Ten years later, thinking about a bunch of 20-somethings getting starstruck by people who have written way too many abstract books and articles is absolutely hysterical to me. And nerdy. I mean, like, really, really, really nerdy. Like, Star Trek conventions dad jokes and pocket protectors all stuffed in one neon green fanny pack. Nerdy. And I was in heaven. You know, not to brag, but uh, a couple of those uh, world-renowned professors said that my paper was, and I quote, not bad. <laughs> yeah. And they were right. 
It was so not bad that they published that short paper, a paper aimed at getting Christians to take care of the natural world, in a book alongside all those big dog scholars. I was proud of how hard I worked. I was proud of my motivation in writing it and how it turned out. But as is so often the case, proud turned into prideful. When we left St. Andrews heading west, we stuffed our things in the trunk and my overinflated head in the back seat. And as we rolled through the green Scottish countryside, I was basking in my glory and planning out my impending ascendancy. <laughs> we made our way by car and ferry to the island of Iona off Scotland's west coast. This tiny island, about three square miles, was the island from which St. Columba launched his mission to Great Britain. It has about 150 year-round residents, a golf course that also serves as a livestock pasture because, hey, we're in Scotland, people, <laughs> and the Abbey, the Abbey, which serves as a pilgrimage site for 130,000 people every year. I got there, not really knowing what to expect, but what happened was this. As I slowly let myself get into the rhythm of that island, as the waves and the wind of the Atlantic Ocean churned all around us, as the worship in the Abbey echoed, as the bleeding of sheep ran across the hilltops, something came over me. And over the course of that day, I went from self-sure scholar to pensive pilgrim. I've heard people gush about finding thin places, places where heaven and earth, where God and creatures are barely separated from one another. For some of you, your thin place is on your back deck watching the birds. For some of you, your thin place is on the prairie or maybe in the mountains. For some, it's worshiping at Village Church on Sunday mornings. They are out there. And when I first found my thin place, I was disturbed. I was distressed. I was laid low. It's unusual for that to be the first thing that happens. When I crawled into bed that night, I remember feeling as churned up as the ocean shallows. And when I woke up early the next morning, it had only gotten worse. So I threw on my shoes and started walking from the eastern edge of the island to the west. And when I couldn't go west anymore, I turned north through that pasture golf course, trying to put this feeling behind me, this thing that was pursuing me. But it kept catching up to me. In a last-ditch effort, I started climbing the tallest outcropping I could find, the sheep scattered as level by level I heaved myself up. I distinctly remember coming eye to eye with a lamb with this look on his face like, what are you doing up here? I got to the very top, and to my dismay, I found out that I could not outrun this feeling that was pursuing me. So I gave up. 
and sat down with my legs dangling over the sheer face of the side facing the ocean, and the thought that I had been trying to avoid jumped all over me. You know this isn't who you are. You know this isn't how you need to be doing this. When I read Jesus' words to Peter, even today, you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. Well, even today, it cuts me to the quick. To this day, I don't think that that thought came from within me because often when that kind of self-criticism starts there, it's saturated with shame and crippling guilt. But this thought that something wasn't right, that my way of being wasn't right, well, it was like a punch to the gut that put air back in my lungs. It was like I could breathe, really breathe, for the first time since we left St. Andrews, sitting on top of that stone pillar, listening to the waves and the wind, and watching the beams of morning sunlight break through the clouds overhead, I felt whole again. In that exact same moment, I was rebuked and I was renewed. And then I had to remove myself from this outcropping because there was a flock of sheep bleeding at me to get off their home. On my way back to the room, I stopped by a house that had a bucket full of stones in a slot you could place a pound in if you wanted one. I picked out a large, dense stone that is in places white, but in others it is stained with a pale green tint. It's incredibly smooth and almost looks polished, except for where it's not, where there are small, jagged edges and deep lines formed by millions of years of pressure. I really wanted this perfectly imperfect rock because on its large face, someone had carved a cross into it. As I held it and looked at it, I came to understand that I was looking at myself. This thing, beautiful, made by God, this thing, uneven, chipped, and shot through with imperfection, this thing, Above all, marked and claimed by Christ forever. Knowing Peter's story, my heights don't look so high and my lows don't look so low. And I'm going to guess that it's the same for you. St. Peter, the rock, is like that rock I chose, solid but imperfect. And that rock is the one which the church on which we are built. So we shouldn't be at all surprised when something beautiful then becomes stained or when cracks caused by the pressures of the world are right beside our most polished parts. The challenge for us is to hold the reality of who we are in tension lest we either start believing our hype or losing our hope. Both are temptations in the Christian life and both take us off the path of discipleship. The St. Peter, the rock, that person like us, he didn't leave that path. He came up short plenty, and he also did his fair share of good. 
But the most important thing about him is that he kept following Christ step after step after step. I cannot, standing here today, think of a more important time than right now for the church to make sure that's exactly what we're doing for a whole lot of reasons. And one of them is gun violence in our country and in our community. Less than 48 hours ago, 25-year-old Aaron Langhofer, who helped survivors of domestic abuse at Rosebrook Center, was hit by an errant bullet in downtown Kansas City, leaving her family and friends to mourn and wonder at the senselessness of it all. And yesterday in El Paso, Texas, and last night in Dayton, Ohio, that same shock and loss played out on an even larger scale. A week earlier, it was in Gilroy, California. A month before that, it was in Virginia Beach. A year before that, it was Annapolis, Maryland. Five years earlier, it was at the Jewish Community Center in Overland Park. And 10 years before that, Colleen, Texas. And 10 years before that, Columbine High School. The list goes on and on, and I am struck as I think about what the church's role in all this could be, what it might be, by Jesus' last words to Peter in the Gospel of John. Three times Jesus tells Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Take care of the flock. If that's Peter's job, and he's the foundation upon which we are built, then it's our job, too. I'm going to be the first to admit that I don't know exactly how we are going to do that, but something must be done about gun culture. You better believe gun culture. But it's also about a lonely world getting lonelier, a long history of harm, to people of color in our country, a mental health crisis, unsafe neighborhoods, toxic masculinity, and white nationalism. It will be a long time before we peel back all the layers on this, but when I start thinking about our solutions, about our kids running drills at school, armed security guards at the grocery store, trainings in businesses, schools, and churches that remind you that if you are cornered, you should throw books and staplers at an armed assailant. And I have to ask this, is this really the best we can do? Because when I read scripture, when I read the revelation from God, I read of a day when righteousness and peace will fill our lands a day when swords will be beaten into plowshares, a day when no one shall know harm on God's holy mountain. That's the divine wisdom that we are given. That's the divine wisdom that we need to guide us and lead us forward into a better day because there are people hurting in our midst right now. And because there's a boy 
sitting down at Village on Antioch this morning who loves adult humor because it makes everybody else laugh. And he's down there with his brothers and his friends, and they're probably playing chase in the fellowship hall right now. And he deserves better. They deserve better. We all deserve better. Maybe, just maybe, one of the ways that people like us can be of most help at this moment is that when people become tempted to normalize or become desensitized to this violence, this brutality, we can be the ones to put before them the vision of peace and reconciliation that is set before us in Scripture. Maybe we can tend the flock with the truth and hope that comes from God, the truth and hope that's acted upon by people like us. In just a moment, we will sing these words together. I don't want you to lose them. In our joys and in our sorrows, days of toil and hours of ease, still he calls in cares and pleasures, Christian, love me more than these. He's still calling to each and every one of us imperfect but solid stones marked as his own to keep on building. So let us give thanks to the God who continues to prepare a table for us with bread and cup so that we might be built up for the work ahead of us. And to that one who prepares that table, to that one be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.